By nature, we are children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come, he might show their surpassing riches of his grace kindness towards those who are in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is salvation, the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, our Father and our God, we come this morning into your presence thanking you for the miracle of conversion, that in the deadness of our trespasses and sins, by your Spirit, you revealed the truth of the gospel that we might freely respond and believe and be saved. We pray for many who are listening, many who will hear this message later, who have never come to faith, we ask that this would be a turning point, that you would use their word, your word to get them ready. We want to come this morning, Father, in obedience to your word. You told us to pray for Israel. You warned that the nation that would curse the people of Israel, you would curse. Those who would bless Israel, you would bless. And while on seven different fronts they have enemies against them this morning, you're sovereign over that people, just as you promised to bring the Messiah the first time through that nation. You promised to unfold the second coming through the people of Israel. And so we lift them up. Thank you that you promised that once you regather them in the land, they would never be removed again. But we know in your sovereignty, you work through the prayers of your people. And so we ask your protection over them. We pray, Holy Father, claiming those promises that you would bring many to genuine faith in Jesus. This morning, as we open your word, please give us open hearts, eyes to see, wills to respond. Help me, Father. Fill me, anoint me, use me. I ask for Jesus' sake and in his holy name. Amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the prophet Malachi. If you're new to the Bible, just find the very first book, Matthew, turn back a page and you'll be in Malachi chapter 4. We've been preaching through this prophet for several months. Remember, he is a prophet who lives at the end of an age, uh, 400 years before the coming of the Lord Jesus when there was no prophet in all of Israel. I suppose if I had to put a title on this series of nine messages, I'd call it God's message for the end of an age because Malachi is preparing the people of Israel who live at the end of the Old Testament era for the first coming of the Messiah. But the amazing thing is here at the end of the book, he looks down through the corridors of time to the end of our age, and he prepares the people who are alive, Jewish people and Gentile alike, for the second coming of Christ. Now remember, he preaches about 100 years after the Jews returned from Babylon. Uh, the city of Jerusalem had been rebuilt by this time. The temple had been reconstructed. There was a revival that took place under Nehemiah, and yet, sadly, that revival was squashed, and the people and the priests had grown cold in heart. And so we saw one of the underlying themes in this great prophecy 
is the fact that God's love is unconditional. And yet the people questioned that love. God said, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That he had elected the Israelites out of all the nations of the world to bring the Messiah. And of course, this was a fulfillment of what God had recorded in Genesis 25 when Rachel is pregnant with twins. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated and the older will serve the younger. It does not mean for one skinny moment that Ishmael went to hell and Isaac went to heaven. His point between those two nations is that one of those nations would become the progenitor from which Jesus would come. And yet, sadly, the people had grown complacent. They had grown lukewarm. And so Malachi wants to stir them up. And we've seen this question and answer back and forth as he highlights six specific sins. Now, his name, Malachi, in Hebrew just means my messenger. We don't know a whole lot about this prophet. We don't know anything about his genealogy or anything. And I suppose if God wanted us to know that, he'd give it to us. But we do know that he is God's messenger, and he presents to the people of Israel God is their father. In 53 out of the 55 verses, he mentions the Lord God himself. I'm looking forward to meeting this prophet in heaven. He's a no-nonsense kind of prophet. He's not afraid to tell people like it is. And of course, what he said in his day applies to our day. Again, the scripture makes a parallel between the first and the second coming of Christ, not only as it relates to Israel, but as it relates to the moral climate of the day. Jesus came the first time in a time of moral darkness, and even so, he will come in a similar time frame uh, for his second coming. So when you think of Malachi, when you think of any of the Old Testament prophets, you need to remember this is not simply what God has said, this is what God is saying. And sadly for many of us, the clean section of our Bibles is the Old Testament, maybe with the exception of the Psalms and the Proverbs. And very rarely does a pastor preach through an entire Old Testament book. It's a sad commentary in the state of the church. And so many of you told me the only sermon I've ever heard out of Malachi was on tithing. Well, this is the ninth sermon, so pay attention. This one is not an easy sermon. This morning's section is not the milk of the word, it's the meat of the word. Remember, Paul said when he refers to the Jewish people and he recounts their history in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so the people of Malachi are under a foreign power. Uh, the Persian king Cyrus is ruling. This is the time frame known as the time of the Gentiles. The time of the Gentiles begins when Israel has no king on the throne. And it ends when Yeshua literally comes back and what we pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, will literally be fulfilled because the Old Testament prophets as the New Testament speak of a literal kingdom on the earth when the Messiah will rule and reign. And Jesus will once again sit on that throne. And of course, what we see happening today in the nation of Israel is very, very important because God culminates human history. Some people think we're just all going to be swept up into heaven, and that's the end. You have to discount hundreds of passages of Scripture and spiritualize them and not interpret them plainly. Now, Zechariah the prophet, he was an important prophet of God. And how did the prophecies concerning Zechariah 
How were they fulfilled concerning the first coming? Literally, he predicts that Messiah will come into Jerusalem on a donkey. He predicts that one of the disciples will betray him for 30 pieces of silver. He predicts that the shepherd would be struck and the apostles would flee. All of those were literally fulfilled and referenced in the New Testament. And so when the scripture speaks of this coming future day, you can expect the same. So for instance, in Zechariah chapter 12, he's speaking of the very end time when the Messiah comes a second time, behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. It will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, all the nations, all who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now, we know from Scripture that the source of all this hatred for Israel throughout the centuries is the devil himself. Whether it's Pharaoh who wanted to kill the little baby boys in Israel, whether it was Haman who wanted to exterminate all the Jewish people, or Hitler who successfully murdered some six million Jews, there's coming a time of great distress when the nations of the world will come against Israel. Now, there's always been a spirit of anti-Semitism because the spirit of Antichrist has been at work. But there's coming a time when it will flip, when the nations as a whole will come against the people of Israel. And something happened on October the 7th that was very unusual. There are people today who don't want to call Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis, terrorists. If they're not terrorists, I don't know what a terrorist is. They came into those kibbutzim and they cut off hands and feet of Jewish people in accordance with the Quran. They abused women. They beheaded several dozen people and took little babies and cooked them alive in the oven. If that's not a terrorist, I don't know what is. Hamas is not interested with the independence of the Gazans. They're interested in destroying the Jews. When people all across America and major cities, including Washington, D.C., Eastern and Western Europe and Australia yesterday, had their Palestinian day, and they chanted from the river to the sea in a multiplicity of languages. They're saying from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea, we want the Jewish people exterminated. We want no Israel. We want no Jewish people. And let me just say, if you are listening to me and you are a member of a denomination that underscores the BDS movement, boycott, divest, and sanction, I'm talking about the UCC, United Church of Christ. I'm talking about the Mennonite Church, USA, the Presbyterian Church, USA. There are many Presbyterians, but PC, USA, the Roman Catholic Church, the Unitarian Church, the United Methodist Church, which last week said that husbands and wives shouldn't call each other husbands and wives because that's offensive. The Episcopal Church, these woke denominations, they are anti-Semite to the core. And if you're a member of one of those churches, you should leave and find a church that respects the nation of Israel. And so here is Israel. Listen, they're not occupiers. They own the land according to Scripture. They own the land, and someday they will have it fully realized. And so in Malachi's day, they're under a foreign power. 
And the scripture is clear that they will continue to be oppressed until Messiah returns. Now, chapter 4, if you remember, we were there last time. It opens, as he reminds us in the opening three verses, that those who fear the Lord will be rescued. Why? Because there's a real place called hell, a real place of eternal retribution and judgment. And only those that truly fear the Lord will be indeed rescued. And then in verses 4 through 6, he looks down the corridors of time when the people of Israel will be revived. Now, God has always had his remnant, but there's coming a time when the nation as a whole is going to turn and believe in their Messiah. Malachi chapter 4, follow along. If you don't have a Bible, come tonight to meet the pastor. You need a Bible to follow my sermons. You'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach because I'm not here to share my opinion, but to read and expound the Word of God. And again, I will tell you, this morning's message is not the milk of the Word, it's the meat of the Word. So pay close attention. You may have to go back and listen to it. Follow along. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now in verses 4 through 6, there are two primary characters. Notice Moses and Elijah. Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant. And then here in verse 5, behold, I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet. Moses is the great lawgiver. Elijah is the great preacher. And Moses' last words to the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy contain some 14 exhortations to remember the law that God had given to them. So here is Malachi in this little short closing prophetic book, really giving the same exhortation that Moses gave. Now, it is true that the order of the books in the Hebrew Bible are different from ours. They have the same books we have, they just organize them differently. And so their Bible ends with uh, Chronicles, one of the historical books, rather than Malachi. However, when a Jewish person to this day summarized the Bible in Malachi's day and Jesus' day in our day, they will simply call it the Law and the Prophets or sometimes Moses in the prophets. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. In Luke 16, 16, he said, John the Baptist preached the law and the prophets. Paul in Acts 13 opened up the law and the prophets. Or in Luke 16 as well, Jesus said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. Moses wrote the first five books. The rest of the Bible was simply called the prophets. Now, with that said, it's interesting that Malachi concludes with these two particular men who are both prophets of God, Moses and Elijah, two great men who towered above their contemporaries and their colleagues, both passing in eternity in a rather unusual way. Moses, well, he's buried by God himself, known only to the Lord, so when you go to some of these places in the Middle East, and they say, well, this is where Moses is buried. I'm glad they know because God said nobody knows but he himself. And, uh, and then, of course, Elijah the prophet was translated into heaven supernaturally. And it's interesting that both of these men are seen on the Mount of Transfiguration dialoguing with Jesus. And I might add of most importance that these two men repeatedly summarized and summed up the entire Old Testament. 
Again, in Scripture, Moses represents the Torah, the Pentateuchos, the first five books. He represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. So Jesus on the Emmaus Road opened up the law and the prophets, and sometimes they will add in the Psalms. Moses, the great lawgiver, Elijah, the great deliverer. With that said, when you think of the Old Testament, in the 4th century A.D., the Gentile church divided the Old Testament into major and minor prophets. And that, I think, is an unfortunate designation for our day because we tend to think the major prophets are more important than the minor. Look, all Scripture is the breath of God. Malachi, though a very short, comparatively speaking, prophet, in fact, all the quote-unquote minor prophets are about the same size as the singular prophet Isaiah. Major and minor was used in the 4th century to describe the length of the prophets. But the way the Jews, when they described the prophets, they spoke of uh, earlier prophets, former prophets, and what they called the latter prophet, and they recognized that the last prophet of the Old Testament was Malachi. So here's Malachi, the last prophet, the last writer before there's 400 years of silence when there is no voice in the land of Israel. And he begins by asking them to remember Moses. Point one in your outline, if you're taking notes, there is a note-taking outline. If you received a bulletin as you came in, you might want to jot down some thoughts for reflection. If you're online, you can print it out. First, we are to look to the past and remember. That's the first thing. Look to the past and remember. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Remember in Hebrew, the word zakar doesn't simply mean to call to mind, but it is used to refer to acting on something that you know to be true, something that was remembered. And that's how it's used in Scripture. You wouldn't have to know Hebrew to figure that out. Most of the time, you don't. For instance, in Exodus 20 and verse 8, when he describes the Sabbath, he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Or when Moses told the Jews to make a tassel in the corner of their garments, When you go to Israel today, you'll see Orthodox Jews with these tassels, and they're different lengths, different colors, different stripes, depending often on the particular group of Orthodox people that they represent, but the meaning is the same. In Numbers 15, Moses said, and it shall be a tassel for you to look and remember all the commandments of the Lord. So those tassels were a physical reminder of the law of God, the commandments of God, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, in order that you may remember to do all my commandments and to be holy to your God. My point is I want you to see is that true thought, true remembrance in Scripture cannot be separated from obedience. And we acknowledge that as Jesus taught even at the Lord's table. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul underscored this truth that at the table of the Lord, we remember the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Why? That we might obey, that we're not complacent that our hearts are clean and we walk in holiness before the Lord. Notice, too, that Moses, this great lawgiver, is described here not simply as the great legislator, but as a servant. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. What a great title to summarize a person's life. The writer of the Hebrews put out on the margin, Hebrews 3 and verse 5, next to that verse, Moses was faithful in his house as a servant. And I think here, as much as anything, 
Moses is mentioned as God's servant for the simple reason he comes on God's behalf with God's authority. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Horeb, if you remember from the book of Exodus, is called the mountain of God. There are two names for the same place. Many of you know it is either Mount Horeb or Mount Horeb in English or Mount Sinai, the same place. And they're in important places. It's an important place. And Malachi wants to pin down in their mind this event when God gave Moses the law. He's taking the nation back to a time and to a place where God met Moses when the mountain was shaken, there was thunder, there was smoke, there was lightning, and he came down to converse with Moses, the servant of the Lord. He gave him the law and the commandments, and Moses then in turn presented them to the people. Now, we have a formal record of that in the last book that Moses writes called the book of Deuteronomy. Let me remind you how the book of Deuteronomy opens. You might want to turn to Deuteronomy. We'll be here for a minute, or you can just listen carefully. These are the words, Deuteronomy 1.1, the davarim uh, is the word for words. And by the way, I shared with you a month or so ago that the first five books of the Old Testament have a different name in the Hebrew Bible. We take the five titles from the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Remember, titles of the Bible are not inspired per se. They're written on scrolls. So, oh, that's the Isaiah scroll. That's the about a sheet scroll or whatever it might be. Just like chapter and verses are added so we can find our way around. Well, the Jewish people took the titles of the first five books from the first opening verses in each of these five uh, books of the law. So Barashit is the first word in the Hebrew Bible, in the beginning. They called the book Barashit. We call it Genesis, which means beginning in Greek. Anyway, these are the words which he spoke, same word, verbal form, to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness. Then in verse 5, across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law. So this is the last thing he does before the Lord is going to take him out of this life. He's going to expound the law that God gave him. And then after God's law is clearly spelled out through his servant, he gives some concluding warnings. Fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy 28. Listen to these words in Deuteronomy 28 in verse 1. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. You'll be blessed. And then look down at verse 15 of this same chapter. The opposite was true. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. So God promised the nation, if you obey, I'll bless you. But if you don't, I will curse you. You will come under my divine discipline. And of course, this covenant, which Malachi is reminding the people to obey, was not simply for the people in Moses' day, but for subsequent generations. That's why we read here in Deuteronomy 29, 29 in verses 14 and 15. Now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath. 
but both, verse 15, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord and with those who are not with us today, not just for this generation, but for generations to follow. And so Malachi is appealing to the people of his day to remember and to obey. And God is not asking them to do the impossible. God doesn't say jump over that house. That would be ridiculous. I can't jump over a house. Any command that God gives you in Scripture, he gives you the grace and the power and the means in which to accomplish it. And so in Deuteronomy 30, beginning in verse 11, for this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of your reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we shall observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and to make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you and in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. You're hearing, right? Romans, the 10th chapter. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity. Now, of course, if you read Deuteronomy 28 through 30 carefully, you discover that God predicts through his servant that there's coming a time in Israel's history when they will be scattered. God always has had a remnant of Jewish people who are true believers even to this day. And of course, when the Messiah uh, did, not, uh, did come some 400 years later, he still had a remnant, but it was a remnant. Comparatively speaking, out of the several million Jewish people who were alive when Jesus came, maybe 30,000 came to genuine faith if you read the numbers at face value in the book of Acts. And that's why John can say he came to his own, the Jewish people, but his own received him not. But for the most part, they rejected him. So listen to what Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 24. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And we'll see specifically, pay attention, when this is going to happen or when it did happen. Because he came to his own and his own did not receive him. He's not talking about going to Babylon or to Assyria. He's talking about being scattered among all the peoples. And then in verse 66 of chapter 28, so your life shall hang in doubt before you and you shall be in dread night and day and shall have no assurance of your life. That's the history of the Jewish people. These two verses summarize their heartache and their scattering. Now, he first predicts this. You don't have to turn there. Deuteronomy 4.27, the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. But Jesus pinpoints for us when this is going to take place. It was prophesied, but it did not take place, not yet even in Malachi's day. And so in Luke chapter 21, Jesus is speaking of the time after he is crucified when the Roman general Titus Vespucian will come in and crush the nation, 70 AD, and it starts a scattering time. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive where? Into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That began in 70 A.D., and it went all the way through 135 A.D. And God just scattered the Jews, where? To the four corners of the earth. 
Ezekiel said this would happen. Jeremiah said it would happen. Isaiah said it would happen. Moses said it would happen. Book after book after book said it would happen. And it happens just as Jesus said. But there's this, again, this warning in Matthew, Deuteronomy 28, 64, but with a blessing. Here's the warning again. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. Now, remember, he's writing that 1,400 years before Christ. But he also makes a promise in Deuteronomy 30 in verse 4. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. It's an incredible prophecy. Most people today, sadly, because the reformers came out of Roman Catholicism, believe that the church has replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology. It's grossly in error. You have to write off hundreds and hundreds of passages of Scripture and the Old Testament, and you have to spiritualize the New Testament passages. Because you see, for nearly 2,000 years, the Jews, just as Jesus predicted, were scattered to the four corners of the earth. And the conclusion, starting largely with Augustine, through the popes, through Luther, through Calvin, was that God's done with the Jewish people. Listen to what Ezekiel the prophet says concerning a regathering, like Moses said. Ezekiel 11, verse 17. Therefore, say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you from the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. Or in Ezekiel 36, 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. And we are privileged to watch in our day prophecy being fulfilled. After nearly 2,000 years, God has gathered the people. There's over 100 nations of Jewish people living in Israel today. And this increased hatred against Israel has exploded. Even yesterday across the world, as people protested the Jewish people. And God said it will come to a height, of course, during this future time called the time of Jacob's trouble. And so God prophesies through Ezekiel and he prophesies through Moses that when the nation would respond, he would not only gather them physically, he would bring them about spiritually. Again, so it shall be. When all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind, and all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you. And we'll gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. This is the physical gathering. Verse 4, if your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will bring you back. But then, listen to verse 5, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possess, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And that's what's happened. 
20,000 Jews in Israel in 1900, 600,000 the day they become a nation, now over 7 million people, more Jews alive in Israel today than at any other time in all of human history. He has gathered the people, he has prospered them, he has multiplied them, and so that a small nation the size of New Jersey is considered one of the great superpowers of the world. But there's going to be, after the physical regathering, as Ezekiel says, I'll gather you from the four corners, and then he's going to shake the bones, the dry bones prophecy, or here in Moses' words, this revival, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. More than physical circumcision, Paul uses this same imagery in Romans 2, They needed a revival in the heart to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, in order that you may live. So God predicts a day when he would gather them, when he would prosper them, and then when he would repent. And so Moses predicts that day would happen. Jesus predicts the day will happen. In fact, Jesus is clear. He cannot come back for the second coming until the Jewish people, until the Jewish people acknowledge that he is their Messiah. Listen to what he said right before the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. Matthew 23, 39. For I say to you, from now on, you, you who? You, the Jews who are present. There's no Gentiles here. These are all Jewish people he's speaking to. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until, until implies there's a change coming, until you say, and he quotes Psalm 118, the great messianic psalm, Baruch Ababa Shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Since Jesus came in the name of Yahweh, in the name of the Lord, he is not going to come back until the Jewish people acknowledge that he is indeed their Messiah. So understand, while the rapture, the catching up of the church is imminent, nothing is ever needed to be fulfilled for Jesus to come back and to gather his church. But the time of Jacob's trouble, this seven plus year period, is a prophetically driven event. All kinds of things have to happen for the second coming to take place. But God is setting the stage. He has reestablished the nation and the land. He's gathered the Jewish people. And this hatred that the prophets predict when all the nations will come against Israel is beginning to start. Now, sadly, Most commentaries that I have in my library, when they come to Malachi 4, 4 through 6, they just give a summary paragraph, and they skip over it as if these are unimportant words. These are not unimportant words. These words remind us that God is sovereign in the affairs of men and nations. And just as he is sovereign over Israel, he is sovereign over your life. Nothing providentially can happen to you apart from the hand of the Lord. And so the Malachi, if you remember, in these opening verses, reminds us that the S-U-N, who's compared to the S-O-N in Scripture, is coming back. The son of righteousness, the Messiah, every Jew believes that's a messianic verse, will come back and he'll bless the world. The The chapter opens, for behold, the day is coming. Then in verse three, the day which I am preparing. And then in verse five, he mentions the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so there's a new day that is coming. But before it can be initiated and unfolded, Elijah the prophet must come back. And it is hardly by accident 
that Moses and Elijah appear together here at the closing verses of the Old Testament because they remind us of two great truths, one concerning the past and the other concerning the future. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. But he doesn't stop there. Stay with me. This is not milk. This is meat. You got to pay attention. Don't let your mind wander. We are to look to the past and remember. Secondly, we are to look to the future and watch. We're to look to the future and watch. Now, notice carefully verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. When? Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, again, if you remember the context, verses 1 through 3, he spoke of the judgment that will come after the tribulation at the second coming of Christ. But now notice, he speaks of Elijah's coming again. When? Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, unlike the six days of creation that are literal, actual 24-hour days with no spaces in between, that's how Moses understood them. When God gives us divine commentary on the days of creation in Genesis and Exodus 20, he said, just like God created the earth and the heavens in six literal days, even so there's one day that you are to acknowledge and keep holy, a Sabbath day. And so there are teachers, Tim Keller and others, who've done the church a great disservice by saying these things don't matter, that we've been here for billions of years. That put the church asleep. Listen, no theologian is worth the print on a book that he might make if he embraces theistic evolution, that God used evolution to create the world. He did not. If you can believe the first verse of the Bible, you can read, believe the rest of the Bible. But the devil wants you to believe that we've been here for billions of years. Why? Because there's no coming accountability. But if indeed this creation, as the New Testament pictures it, as divine commentary pictures it, as every Jewish person believes, is less than 10,000 years old, there's coming a day, probably sooner than we realize, and I would say around 6,000 years old, based on the chronology, in which the Messiah will literally actually come again. And so, again, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great terrible day of the Lord. So there are literal 24-hour days, but sometimes in Scripture, like this phrase, the day of the Lord, if you just got a computer concordance and went through all the times the day of the Lord appears, you learn quickly it's an extended period of time, like the day of your youth. You weren't a youth for one day. There was an extended period of time in which you were a youth. But the day of the Lord mimics a biblical day. When does a biblical day start? At sundown. When does it end? Sundown the next day. Every Jew honors the Sabbath in that way. And so that's how the day of the Lord is described. You know, yesterday, towards the end of the day, it, the sun was setting, but it wasn't sundown yet. But it was getting darker. I was still working out in my yard. I, I worked on messages for 10 hours, ministered to one of our families yesterday. One of our deacons went home to be with Jesus. And, and then it began to get dark. But it wasn't officially sunset yet. And then sunset came. And so with the day of the Lord, sunset comes. It gets very dark during the tribulation. Then the S-O-N comes back to earth. 
It gets gloriously bright for a thousand years where he will rule and reign six times over, we're told in Revelation 20. Then at the end of the thousand years, those people who enter their bodies, enter the the millennium in their natural bodies, believers, will have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and their offspring will have to make a decision for Jesus. Not all will. And so Satan, who's been bound for a thousand years, will be loosed, and their offspring will go against God's Messiah, who's ruling and reigning on the earth. And it gets dark, and then God brings us into the eternal state, and it's bright and light forever. So the day of the Lord, this long thousand and seven-year-plus period of time, mimics a biblical day. And of course, notice it says Elijah is coming before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. So there's coming a time after the church is removed. It's a seven-year period. Jeremiah the prophet calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. The New Testament calls it the tribulation period that's divided into two halves. The first half is called a time of tribulation. But from the middle point onward, it's called a time of great tribulation. So Jesus speaks of this antichrist who will go into a rebuilt temple. You say, will the temple be rebuilt? Of course it will. The scripture says it will be rebuilt. In fact, they have manufactured every stitch of clothing that priests will wear. Some of you have been with me to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, right outside the Western Wall. Every piece of furniture has been remanufactured with the exception of the Ark of the Covenant. And they say because they know where it is. And the temple plans, all the architectural plans, all the needed codes, everything, it's all drawn out. It's going to happen. And in the middle of this seven-year period, the Antichrist will go into this rebuilt temple, and he will stop the sacrifices that the Jews are going to make. And, And it's called the abomination of desolation. And when that happens, Jesus said, for then there will be great tribulation. It's not that the first half is light. You can read of the sealed judgments in Revelation 6. It's a horrible time. But they hadn't seen anything yet. So when this event happens, it becomes great tribulation. If you're Jewish, flee to the mountains. You who are in Judah, flee to the mountains. Not you who are in Dallas. He's talking about the Jewish people. Flee to the mountains. And you begin to see the trumpet judgments, the bold judgments, and they are so intense when you read of them in Scripture. So intense, Jesus said, unless those days were cut short, no one could survive. Has that ever happened in human history? Never. But you've got these people, they teach preterism. They say Matthew 24 has already happened with the exception of the second coming. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's to abuse scripture. For then there will be great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of time until now. And so Elijah is coming before the great tribulation, which puts him in the first half of the tribulation period. He comes in the first three and a half years of the time of the great tribulation. Now question, will the prophet Elijah come again? Obviously, I think so. The title of the sermon is called The Return of Elijah. But don't take my word for it. The Bible teaches that Elijah the prophet will literally come. Sometimes people call me in the Bible line and they've asked, well, did not John the Baptist fulfill that prophecy? Now, remember, there are two comings of the Messiah. He comes first to die on a cross 
to suffer and to bleed. He comes again to rule in the reign. And with those two comings, there's two forerunners. For the first coming, there's John the Baptist. There's a forerunner for the second coming, Elijah the prophet. And so Jesus came first to die. And so we learned in Malachi 3.1 of the forerunner for the first coming. Listen to Malachi 3 in verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before you. And we studied that passage in depth, and we saw how Jesus quoted Malachi 3.1 in Matthew 11.10 and said, that's John the Baptist. Now, Malachi speaks of another man like John who comes to prepare the way of the Lord for the second coming. And Malachi writes of him here in verses 5 and 6, and he spoke of him in such a way that it will become clear, I think, to all of us that he will literally come back. And by the way, every Jew believes he's coming back. Every Passover, what do they do? They always have one extra place setting. For who? Elijah the prophet. And it's always a dramatic scene when the head of the home will send one of those Jewish boys to open the door to see if Elijah's there. Why do they believe that? Because the scripture says Elijah is coming back. Now hold your finger here. Some of these have no slides. Turn to Matthew chapter, Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17 for just a moment. I know many of you are new to the faith, new to the Bible. And so I just want to remind you that this is the event when Moses and Elijah appear on a mountain where the transfiguration takes place, where Jesus gives a glimpse of the coming kingdom. And it's in the context of the transfiguration that the disciples, Peter, James, and John, ask a question of a man that we're speaking about today called Elijah the prophet. Look at Matthew 17 and verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the son of man has risen from the dead. So after they see Moses and Elijah... Have Moses and Elijah been raised from the dead yet? Not yet. Not yet. The resurrection of the Old Testament saints haven't, hasn't happened yet. We'll look at this in just a moment. But pay attention. So what kind of a body, if you die today, if you die today, your person inside that human body, if you know Jesus, absent from the body, present with the Lord, right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of a godly one. So it's, it's a gain for you. The person inside, are you in heaven in some disembodied spirit? No, 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 no. You'll have some intermediate body. Moses and Elijah are in some kind of an intermediate body on the Mount of Transfiguration, but they had not yet been resurrected. And by the way, the disciples had never met these men. 
They lived centuries before, but they immediately recognized them. Hmm. No name tags probably needed in heaven. I think there'll be immediate recognition. But they're still awaiting their resurrection. Nonetheless, they see these two men, and so they ask a question. Look at verse 10. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The disciples had been taught that before the Messiah comes, Elijah is going to show up a second time. Remember, he'd been dead for hundreds of years. So why do the scribes say he's coming again? Were they accurate on this? Absolutely. Remember at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is in that place, and he said, who do men say that I am? And the disciples responded according to what they had been taught and what most people thought. They said, well, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And the reason that the people at large believe that Jesus could possibly be Elijah is because Malachi says Elijah is coming back again. That's what the scribes taught, and correctly so. What they didn't understand is that there are two comings, and one forerunner deals with the first coming, and the other forerunner deals with the second coming. The one when he comes to suffer and die. And so Christ's death on the cross was not a failure. It was part of God's initial program. And so Peter, when he writes of the comings of Christ, said that the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Not only will Messiah suffer and die, but there's going to be magnificent glory that will follow. And so notice what Jesus says in Matthew 17, 11. He answered and said, Elijah is coming. Circle that verb, is. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. He's very clear. Elijah is coming a second time as the forerunner to the second coming of the Messiah. He affirmed Elijah is going to appear before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Because remember, it goes from tribulation to great tribulation, which puts him in the first half of the great tribulation period. He will come a second time, not when Messiah comes as a suffering servant, but when he comes as a sovereign king. And he plainly taught that. Again, look at verse 12. But I say to you, interestingly, Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is coming to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. This is not double talk. It's a statement with a double-edged sword to it. On the one hand, he's affirming affirming Elijah is coming. On the other hand, he's affirming that Elijah has come. How so? Because as the scripture predicted of John the Baptist, he would come in the spirit and with the same kind of ministry that Elijah came in. And when you study their ministries, the similarity is incredible. Elijah, what did he do? He called the people to repentance at a deep, dark time in Israel's history. What does John do? He preaches a ministry of repentance at a deep, dark time in Israel's history to get ready for the coming of the Lord. Elijah, what does he do? He preaches to King Ahab. Who does John the Baptist preach to? He preaches to King Herod, and both sought to kill those men. One, of course, was not successful. The other man, John, lost his head. And so Jesus said in verse 14, these two men who preached to the multitudes were only a remnant respond. 
responded, if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. In what sense was John the baptizer Elijah who was to come? And that he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. He dressed and ministered in the same way that Elijah came. Interestingly, John fulfills the prophecy in Malachi 3.1. Elijah fulfills the prophecy here in Malachi 4. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. And he's coming before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Question, stay with me. This is not milk, this is meat. You say, Pastor, are there any passages elsewhere in the Bible that might illuminate for us this coming. I'm glad you asked. Turn to the book of Revelation, the 11th chapter, Revelation 11. Now, I know there are people who come here some weeks, and this is the first time they've ever heard a sermon longer than 20 minutes. Look, sermonettes are for Christianettes. I'm not here to give you milk. I'm here to give you meat. I'm here to weed out people who have a heart for the things of God and those who do not. Matthew chapter 11, uh, I mean, Revelation chapter 11. And again, I want you to think about this coming day that John speaks of. And there's a unity in Scripture. Revelation 11, look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And it's interesting that very often the specificity of God's judgments are given in Scripture, whether it's the great flood or whether it's these two men who come for 1,260 days, three and a half years, or 42 months, all used to describe their ministry in the first half of the great tribulation. Again, we know they minister in the first half. Why? Because in the middle of the tribulation, they get killed. But before they get killed, they're indestructible. No one can hurt them. And of course, when they get murdered, the devil has his own Christmas. The world rejoices. They send gifts to one another. And again, that happens in the time frame of the abomination of desolation. And when that happens, as I read earlier, then there will be a great tribulation. So these men come before it goes from tribulation to great tribulation. Behold, we just read in Malachi, don't lose revelation, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now think your way through how these two men are described. Look at verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. They're described like olive trees and lampstands. Where does the imagery come from? Remember when we studied the book of Revelation, we took nearly three years to get through it. All of the imagery from Revelation comes from the Old Testament. That's why it's a difficult book, because today people don't know the Old Testament. And he never once introduces a, singular, a single Old Testament passage. This is what Isaiah said. So you have to go and mine it out. And of course, this imagery comes from the prophet Zechariah, where he describes these uh, two lampstands that are being fed emblematically with oil, who's symbolic, of course, in that passage of the Holy Spirit. And these men will minister in the power of the Spirit. Even so, the church in the first two, three chapters of Revelation, the end of one into two and three, are described as seven lampstands, seven churches. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Look at verse five. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. You know, we have prophets and pastors today who preach hellfire and brimstone. 
That's one thing. These are fire-breathing prophets. They preach fire literally from their mouth. You say, is that possible? Of course it's possible. Again, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe anything that follows. If God can make, as Scripture affirms, dragons that breathe fire, if God can make a donkey literally speak, he can make humans breathe fire if he so chooses. Why does he do this? Because he wants to bring repentance. He wants to shake the Jewish people and the nations of the world that time is running out and men need to call upon the Lord. And before that happens, these guys are indestructible, which is somewhat of a comfort to me as a pastor because as persecution heats up, and I think it's only going to grow in this country, you in one sense as you walk with Jesus are indestructible until God says your time is over. And that's what these men are like. Look at verse 6. These, these two men have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, they not only have the power over individuals to kill an individual with fire from their mouth, they have power over the nations. And if a nation wants to have clear drinking water, not turn into blood, they better listen to these two witnesses. Now, some have suggested titles as to who these men are. Most almost universally would agree that one of them is Elijah. Why? Because the ministry of the two witnesses in the Revelation take place in the first half of the tribulation. Malachi affirms that Elijah is coming back in the first half of the tribulation before the great and terrible day, the second half of the tribulation period. So almost universally, most would agree that one of these two witnesses are Elijah. Well, who would be the second? Well, some have said the second is Enoch. Why? Because Elijah and Enoch were supernaturally removed from the earth. Remember Enoch? Enoch walked with God, Genesis 5 says, and he was not, for God took him. And the writer of the Hebrews, when he comments on this event, he says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death, and he was not found. That means they looked for him, because God took him up. All of a sudden, Enoch was gone. Likewise, the prophet Elijah, as they, they meaning Elijah and Elisha, his comrade who will take his place, as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. And nothing more is said about the destination as to where he's taken. It just says he is taken to heaven. Now, heaven, shayamin in scripture, can refer to either the sky that is around us, deep outer space where all the planets and the stars are, or the third heaven where the Lord God himself is, has his throne room. And of course, question, did Elijah and Enoch go into the throne room of God? Impossible. Impossible. Now think your way through this. You're intelligent people. Remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. You say, why is that impossible? Well, first of all, the Bible is clear that the very first one to get a resurrection body is Yeshua. His name is Jesus in English. Remember, he's the first fruit of all that is going to happen. And you need a resurrection body to be able to be in the presence, to walk on streets of gold. So they didn't get a resurrection body. I didn't. So listen to what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Then he tells us, 
For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. And so in both cases, these men, when they leave in bodily form, are not translated like we will be in the rapture with new resurrection bodies. Because Jesus, the scripture, is clearly the first one ever to get a resurrection body. He said, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven. He said that long after Enoch and Elijah had been taken up, no one has ascended into heaven. What happened to Old Testament saints? They went to Sheol, two halves. We studied it in our series on prophecy. Righteous Sheol, unrighteous Sheol. In the parable, and maybe an actual historical story in Luke 16, it doesn't change its meaning. There's Abraham's bosom or paradise, and then there's this place of torment. So before the resurrection of Jesus, they went, they were gathered with their people, but they were basically in paradise, because Jesus is the first. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15 further. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Now, certainly, Enoch and Elijah are a type. They are an illustration of those who will one day immediately be translated in the twinkling of an eye, faster than you can blink. Where did they go? We're not told, but I think it's safe to assume They went to Abraham's bosom or Old Testament paradise. Now, Scripture specifically states clearly that Elijah is coming back. And so while I cannot dogmatically say the two witnesses are Elijah and someone else, and I haven't suggested the second person, I think one of them is clearly Elijah. Could there be two witnesses plus Elijah? Certainly. Certainly there could be. Who do you think the second is? Well, think your way through this. Again, in Malachi 4 and verse 5, Behold, I am coming to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and coming terrible day of the Lord. And when you study these two men, you discover that they have ministries that mimic what Elijah the prophet and Moses the prophet did. What did Elijah do? He called fire down from heaven on three different occasions. What did Moses do? He turned water into blood. And I find it interesting that when Christ has a meeting of events that will begin with his second coming in the thousand plus years who follow, who does he gather to discuss it with? Moses and Elijah. You say, well, pastor, are you dogmatic? Of course not. Of course not. Do I think I'm right? Of course I do. (laughs) But, you know, I think it's good that God withheld the information. Why? Because we're thinking about these issues. We're even thinking about what is going to happen in the future with our bodies and so forth. Two men are coming, two witnesses with similar ministries to Moses and Elijah. But we know for sure that Moses, uh, that Elijah is coming. Revelation 11 and verse 6, they have the power to shut up the sky and to turn the waters into blood. So here's Malachi, and he is simply saying, Remember Moses, and then think about Elijah the prophet. Now, don't miss the point in all of this. The apostle John, like Malachi, reminds us, what? That God's not finished with his people yet. He hasn't abandoned the people of Israel. What's the function of the two witnesses who will preach from the Temple Mount to get Israel to repent? And I think, again, it would be fitting that one of them is Elijah because they'll be expecting Elijah to come as they always have been throughout all the centuries. And these men will be preaching, look, you missed your Savior. 
His name is Jesus. In either case, look at their end game. We can debate who they are, but we cannot debate the end game of Elijah the prophet. Look at Malachi 4, verse 6. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, let me just say parenthetically, I've heard all kinds of crazy interpretations over what Malachi 4, 6 means. Mormons use this to say that this is in reference to Joseph Smith, who in September of 1823, the angel Moroni, I call that angel the angel Moran, it was a demon, if there was any such appearance, appeared to Joseph Smith and gave him Elijah's priesthood. It's just ridiculous. Look, Joseph Smith was a pervert. So he wrote a book so that he could justify his perversion. It's well documented now he had over 40 wives. And many Mormons through the internet now can read the actual material and they realize it's true and some are leaving. You should pray for Mormons that they would find Jesus because they, 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 they believe in another Jesus. And there are many so-called evangelicals who believe in another Jesus. Joel Olstein, he's preaching another Jesus. He's not preaching the Christ of the New Testament. The same error, just expressed differently. Nonetheless, some say, well, this is not clearly what Mormons say it is. But they say this is a prophecy where God closes the generation gaps between fathers and children. Who teaches that? Replacement theologians, those who are in the Reformed faith. And reform can mean all kinds of things, just like charismatic can mean all kinds of things. You say, are you a charismatic Christian? Of course I am. I believe that everyone, when they're born again, gets a spiritual gift. Do you believe that you get the gift of tongues or interpretation of tongues? Of course not. That's just ridiculous. It's an abuse of Scripture. But you see, if you believe, unless you don't believe in the sign gifts, as they would say, then they would say, well, you're not a charismatic Christian. Well, look, I believe in the Reformed faith. You see those five solas when I designed this stained glass window? Sola gratia, sola Christos. Sola Scripta, or Sola Fide, Sola Deo Gloria. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, based on Scripture alone, and the glory of God alone. That's Reformed theology. But Reformed theology also says today, God is done with the Jewish people. That the church has taken their place. That's why many pulpits across America aren't even mentioning what's going on in Israel today. They think it's no big deal, and they have helped to put the church asleep. This has nothing to do with healing a generation gap. But look, if you don't take the Scripture at face value, and you have to spiritualize the meaning, you have to come up with something else. When Zechariah, who preaches Messiah, will come on a donkey, there'll be 30 pieces of silver, the shepherd will be struck. He also says Messiah will come and put his feet on the Mount of Olives and split it in two. And he'll rule and reign. And John tells us that reign is a thousand years. What do you have to do? You spiritualize it. What gives us freedom to do that? When all the prophecies for the first coming were literally fulfilled, why would we think the prophecies for the second coming are, should be interpreted any other way? So how would the Jewish people have understood this? Please note he's not talking about a, a father, but the fathers. And so Malachi is speaking of the fathers of Israel. They're known as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who preached Jesus. In Exodus 3, for instance, God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those are the fathers, 
And the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name. In Acts 7, Stephen quotes it. I am the God of your fathers. Who are the fathers? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's quoting Exodus 3, 6 there in Acts 7, 32. So Malachi must be interpreted as a Jew would have understood it in the original audience. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. What was the hearts of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The people embraced the Messiah. Did Abraham embrace the Messiah? You better believe he did. The scripture said, Jesus said it, he saw my day and believed. And by the way, Luke understands this prophecy when he speaks of John the Baptist as a forerunner. When, when Gabriel comes, remember, Gabriel comes and he speaks to John's father, Zechariah. John's still in the womb and he gives a prophecy. Now follow this. Again, this is not something I'm making up. This is what the New Testament affirms. Luke 1, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, speaking of John, and he will drink no wine or liquor or strong drink you could render it. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. He's quoting Malachi 4.6. And the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Before John was born, God's angel Gabriel came and predicted that John the Baptist would minister in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And what would he do? He would turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. And of course, he did that, a remnant, but nonetheless, he did it. Now, listen to John's old test, his own testimony. Right, well, that must mean you're Elijah, right? They asked him, John 1, what then? Are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. They said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm a voice. I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And he quotes Isaiah. Now, we've studied this morning that when Jesus referred to John the Baptist, he said he was Elijah to come, if you could accept it. Why? Because he came in the spirit of Elijah. But he also made clear Elijah is coming. And when he comes during the time of the great tribulation, one of his chief ministries will turn the Jewish people back to the hearts of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who affirmed that Jesus was Lord. Jesus said in John 8, 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. Can you see these? Can you see Elijah the prophet reminding them of what took place on Mount Moriah? And again, if he's one of the two witnesses, where do they preach from? The Temple Mount. Hey, right up on this mountain, there was one of our fathers, his name was Abraham. And he brought his uniquely begotten son, his miracle baby. And by the way, the word monogene is only used of two people. I think you know it, Jesus and Isaac. He was a miracle baby and that one was 100, the other was 90, unable to procreate. And God gave him a child. And he becomes a picture of what Jesus will do. 
He carries the wood up on his back to the top of Mount Moriah as Jesus carried a cross on his back to the peak of Mount Moriah. Jesus is crucified on the top of Mount Moriah, not where the Temple Mount is, but a little further down outside the gate, as the prophet specified, at the actual highest spot on all of mountains of Moriah. We call it today Golgotha. Oh, that's who Abraham believed. Yes, he is going to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and so forth. Now look at Malachi 4, verse 6. I'm almost done. Stay with me. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And again, if you've studied Elijah in 1 Kings, you know he was a very significant person in turning the people around in Israel's history. And Moses is the great lawgiver was used in the same way. Nonetheless, he reasons so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. In other words, if the people didn't respond, God would have to smite the land, not the earth, the land with a curse. Why? Because the land is inseparable from the people. In virtually every man translation, it doesn't say the earth, it says the land. He's dealing here with the land of Israel. Now, how are we going to apply this? Let me make three applications as we close. We're out of time. Number one, the Jewish nation is God's chosen nation. The Jewish nation is God's chosen nation. That's how this prophecy opened in Malachi 1. I have loved you, says Yahweh, but you say, how have you loved us? And there's no more pathetic words in all the New Testament than what they say in that first chapter. How have you loved us? To which God responded, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. And most of you know this quotation found in Romans 9. Just as it is written, and he quotes Malachi, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He's not speaking of one boy going to heaven and another boy going to hell. He's speaking of the fact that God chose one boy in which to bring the Messiah, God's chosen people. God had a plan for Jacob that he did not have for Esau, just as God had a plan for Isaac that he did not have for Ishmael. And God had a plan for the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, that he didn't have for the descendants of Edom, the Edomites. Remember, it comes from Genesis 25, two nations are in your womb, and the older will serve the younger. And so God chose this nation to be his people. Does that mean that every Jewish person will go to heaven? Of course not. In the Old Testament, some Jewish people were swallowed up alive into judgment in Sheol. It's kind of like a man who's on an airplane from Atlanta to Paris. Everyone on the plane is on the same trajectory to Paris. They're headed towards the same destination. But everyone in the plane can make different choices. You can choose, do you want the chicken or the lasagna? Do you want a Diet Coke or a ginger ale? Or You've got individual choices. But the plane is headed to Paris. God has a nation. It's called Israel. And the church has not replaced her. And he has chosen that nation. But every Jewish person within that nation must make a decision to embrace Jesus as Lord or to reject him. And I would say by application, the same is true to every Gentile listening to me. 
He that believes in the Son has life. He who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. So number one, the Jewish nation is God's chosen nation. Number two, God always keeps his promises. You know, God made some promises to the nation of Israel concerning a land, a seed, and a blessing. And although Israel largely is in unbelief today, they won't be forever. Paul ends the eighth chapter of Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God. 9, 10, and 11 is not a parenthesis. It's an illustration. Well, wait a minute. You said you love the nation of Israel with an everlasting love. Nothing can separate us. And so in 9, 10, and 11, he shows God's commitment to Israel. In chapter 9, he shows that Israel was elected in the past. We just studied that in this whole series in Malachi. God chose one nation over the other, Jacob over Esau. And then in chapter 10, he explains their rejection. Israel's rejection. Why why did they reject their Messiah? They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Why? Because they sought to establish a righteousness of their own instead of the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. By the way, that's the reason many Gentiles, some listening to me, are lost. Because you're trying to save yourself. You're trying to establish your own righteousness by what you do. Until the Jewish people see that their righteousness is as filthy rags and falls short of the glory of God, they won't believe. Their election in their past, the rejection in the present, third, Israel's restoration in the future. That's chapter 11. He's not done with the Jewish people. Yes, there's a remnant today, but there's coming a time when Paul said all Israel will believe. Third and finally, God has always had only one way of salvation. Now, I think it's somewhat significant that the Old Testament ends with a curse. Why do you think that happens? Because you see, the law of Moses and good works and good deeds have never, ever, ever been able to save anyone. And the prophecy of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, concludes with a curse. Listen to what Paul says from Moses. He quotes it in Galatians 3. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. God has only had one way of salvation. Jews in the Old Testament weren't saved by being good, and you're saved by grace. Paul makes it clear, as does Moses, to whom he quotes. You want to be justified by keeping the law? You're cursed unless you keep every single commandment. No one can claim it. But then he says in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus became the curse for you. He did for you what you cannot do for yourself. He can redeem you. Now, you can pay for your sin, but it will take you an eternity to do it in an awful place called hell. And if you die and go to hell, it won't be my fault. It will be because of your ugly pride and unbelief kept you from changing your mind about Jesus. God has commanded all men everywhere. He has commanded all men. This is not a suggestion. He has commanded all men everywhere to repent, to change their mind. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through Jesus Christ. And so what you do with Jesus will determine what God will do with you. You reject him. You'll spend an eternity wishing you had not. You receive him. He will forgive your sin. He'll place the spirit of God in your bosom. And when you die or Jesus comes back, he'll take you immediately into heaven. 
Our Holy Father, we thank you for your word today. This is not simply what you have said, but what you are saying. I know, Father, this was a difficult portion of Scripture that most may skip, but you put it here for a reason, maybe to wake up some of us and those listening as to your fulfillment of promises, that you keep every promise you've ever made, that you cannot lie. Help someone today to believe your promise that whoever will call on Jesus' name will be saved. Help someone to recognize that they must change their mind about their sin, about themselves, and about the Savior, and call on him. Help someone, Father, to say, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, many of us have done that. Father, may we not be so blind as to know what is unfolding in our day. Help us to recognize that you said these events concerning Israel would happen at the end of time before the Messiah returns. You said it would be like Noah's day, days of lawlessness, days of immorality. You said the atmosphere would be like Lot's day, days of sexual perversion. You said there will be days of apostasy when men would reject the truth of the Bible, and that Israel would be back in the land. Help us not to be so blind. Help us to be ready and willing and wanting and praying for opportunities to share Jesus. We ask it in his holy name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. If you have a decision to make, to confess Jesus as Lord, to be baptized as a symbol of your salvation or to join this church, I invite you during this invitation to step out and meet me here in the front.